I want to start by introducing you to someone who is very special to me, my grandmother. Um, now, my grandmother and I are very close, and when I moved up to York from London, one thing that she decided to do is uh, write me a letter once a week. Now, I look forward to seeing what is inside the letter each week, and I'm not just talking about the words on the page. Um, now, my delightful nanny, as I call her, each week uh, puts in either a Costa gift card or an M&S voucher, um, <laughs> or even once, uh, £10 cold hard cash. Um, <laughs> Now, about a month ago, I was out running a few errands, and my flatmate uh, checked the post and snapchatted me a photo of my post saying that I had a letter. Now, I immediately recognised my grandmother's handwriting, um, so I, I, like, rushed, I texted her, sorry, um, saying, oh, it's from my grandmother, to which she replied, Costa, here we come. Um, so after racing back from town to campus in anticipation as to whether it was going to be a Costa gift card or M&S, um, I ripped open the letter, only to find to my sheer horror and disappointment, just the card with nothing inside. Um, uh, so obviously, the letter is a lot more precious um, than £10, but then nonetheless, I was a little disappointed. But I do have the card with me here, and I'm going to share a portion of what she's written. Dear Bev, I hope you are feeling happy and settled by now. I was reading in Matthew, and it was about worrying. This is what I learned. Planning for tomorrow is time well spent. Worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. When done well, planning can help alleviate worry. Worry immobilizes, but concern moves you to action. Worries are consumed by fear, and then you find it difficult to trust God. Now, the part of Matthew that she was referring to was Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34, which is a wonderful passage, and up here behind me. Um, but I want to draw your attention to the last verse, 34, which says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Here, the Bible is very clear, um, instructing us not to worry. It's, simple as, it's as simple as my grandmother said, worrying about tomorrow is time wasted. Now, sometimes when we look at the Bible, we pick out just one verse, and we look at, look at that verse out of context, not within the bigger picture of the Bible. And if we do that with this verse and go, oh, don't worry about it, you'll be fine, it'll just go away, it's not very helpful. It seems a little unrealistic and idealistic, especially for those more serious problems that we're inevitably going to worry about. But, and it's a big but, the Bible is not just theoretical, it's a practical guide for our lives. Sometimes we can get bogged down by the idea that we have the Holy Spirit now, and the Bible is just something we can refer to every now and then. But the Bible is our everyday, it is our now. So if we look forward uh, in Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. It's not saying, don't worry about it, it's easy, move on. The Bible is providing a remedy to worry, a way to channel our worry by giving your worries to God through prayer. And it's evident that Paul isn't writing from an ivory tower. He's not Marie Antoinette saying, don't worry, just eat cake. Um, he's writing this from jail, so he gets the tough times. He knows what it's like to suffer and struggle. This command that we should rely on God trusting him and praying to him about our worries is not just in Philippians, but throughout the Bible. Back in Psalms with Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. 
And if you jump forward to the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. This sentiment, repeated throughout the Bible by many people, shows just how important it is. If we are completely consumed by our fears and worries, then we're not actively putting our trust in God. And if that is the case, then we're actually distancing ourselves from God. As if we're saying, yes, God, I love you and all that, but I've got this worry. This is my burden. Um, This one is on me. But that's not what God's telling us to do. God's saying, I can take it. But not only can he take it, he actually wants us to cast our burdens on him. Why? Because he cares. He cares for you. He cares for me. He cares for all of us. It's his love for us. I'm going to jump back to my grandmother's letter um, and read the next line. Um, And for some context, her son, my uncle, Richard, has been in and out of hospital for the past 25 years. And for the past two years, he's been in hospital full time. So trust me when I say her worries aren't feeble. Um, She writes, I was starting to let my worries about Richard consume me, but I'm trying to be more balanced now. She's trying. She's trying to put her trust in God more, working on her relationship with God. She's trying her best, which is what God wants us to do. It's hard to suddenly surrender all of our worries to God. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a journey, a progression, learning to fully rely on God. I, for one, can say that I really struggle to fully give all my worries to God, to rely on him completely and trust him implicitly. But I want to further my relationship with God. It's something that I have to work on, just like any other relationship. So I want us to think about what are we all struggling with? What what is in your life that is consuming you? It can really help to verbalize it. So chat with the people around you about your worries and what is consuming you and how you can give it to God. So I started going to the gym lately. I know. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I've tried this um, new thing at the gym as well. I think it's quite revolutionary. Um, I've actually, I've never done it before. I've actually started going. Um, (laughs) I know. So instead of paying £20 a month to feel guilty, I'm actually paying for a service that I use on a monthly basis. Great stuff. Um, I've been getting more into it. And as you start to go, you start to see the pros. You know, the people that walk around... They live in, like, their workout gear. So they go to work. They, they walk around the supermarkets, so you know that they've been to the gym that day. Um, and I just love it. I just love, like, observing everyone in the gym. Um, and I was like, I can do that. I can get myself some gym leggings. I can be that person. Um, I was like, Fabletics, Gymshark? Yeah. Um, looked online. Quite expensive. So maybe, maybe not. Um, but, yeah, as I was starting to go, I was kind of considering all of this. Um, And I was thinking, okay, like, I'm going to actively have to think about how I don't forget God in this and how I can invite God into this part of my life. Now, I appreciate that sounds quite weird because we can see God as so, like, almighty and this sovereign being. Um, And then picturing your everyday, your gym life, you think almost that it's too small for God or it's too mundane. But I think it's really important for us to notice that God works in your mundane, and God sees your mustard seed of faith. He sees you walk into your lectures. He sees you at work. He sees you with road rage in the morning trying to get somewhere. He sees you shopping. Um, And God is as much with us in that every day, just as he is with us in those really, really big, like, life-defining moments and the crisis and when we're really upset. And he's with us walking through our every day just as much. And it can be quite easy to forget that. Um, But when I say about including God in the gym, I don't mean picturing Jesus like smashing out a 10K on the treadmill. (laughs) If that's that's how you need to visualize it, great, love it, do it. 
But for me, I feel like these really innocent thoughts of like, hey, I'm going to focus on fitness. I'm going to like focus on how I can be more healthy and things like that can actually quite easily turn into maybe unhealthy thoughts of maybe slightly more obsessive ones of comparing yourself of, well, I don't look like that and focusing on numbers. What does this say? What and what do the people around me look like? And should I be looking like that when all of these kind of goals, lots of them are quite unattainable. Like I find that in our society, because we have the mass media so readily available, it kind of just exacerbates that problem of trying to reach like an unattainable aesthetic. Um, and I think as I was kind of sitting back and realizing how my thought patterns kind of go in that way, um, these innocent thoughts and this innocent comparison is really actually a criticism to God. Um, and maybe for you, it's not exactly your body image. Maybe it's not what you see about yourself. But maybe it's, oh, if only I had the money to afford what that person has. Or oh, if only I could achieve or got the grades that that person did or had the, like, the salary or whatever of this person. It's that kind of comparison. And it all kind of results in thinking, what I have now is not good enough. And that's so opposite to what the Bible says. And it's so opposite to what God says about ourselves. And... In um, Romans 12, 2, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Um, and I think that's really important to note, notice is because all of this kind of comparison, it's so easy for us to do. It's not we're horrible people and we're, we're, we're so in the dark of everything. Like, no, we're Christians doing our everyday life, but this is really easy for us to do. But actually, if we could start to focus, start to posture our hearts, our thoughts, our like, patterns of behavior towards God and towards what the scriptures say about us, then maybe we could start to reverse some of that or stop some of those negative patterns happening. Um, my friend said something to me a couple of years ago and it really struck me. Um, she said that, she said that um, whatever you criticize about yourself, whether it's your aesthetic or your finances or whatever, when you pick apart a part of yourself, you're criticizing God. If we believe that in Genesis, when it talks about God created mankind in his own image, and then he reflects on that and calls us good, we're saying that what God created is, is not enough, it's imperfect, it's got room, room for improvement. And that's not what our creator calls us out on. That's not what he writes over our life. Um, and each of these thought patterns are sowing seeds of criticism towards him, towards our creator. Um, and comparison in this aspect is really the thief of joy. We can go so far, but if you're up here and you're still comparing yourself, it's really thieving you of so much joy and so much opportunity in your life because you're looking around the people um, next to you and, and you, it, it stops you like that, that glass ceiling. Um, but yeah, so I think as well, when we look through the Bible, we see, like the scriptures I've just mentioned, there's a lot of great stuff. There's a lot of really beautiful poetic language where God talks about um, how we're fearfully and wonderfully made, how we're fully known and loved. We're children of God. We're heiresses to the kingdom and heirs. <laughs> um, and that's so, that's so lovely to, to see that. And I think if you criticized yourself and said these really cutting things about yourself and then read that, you'd see how vastly different it is. And nobody else is saying this stuff about us, apart from us. And God says about you, no, you are loved. You are beautiful. In, um, in 1 Corinthians, yeah, 
says that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, and in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we're the handiwork of God or with, the, or with God's craftsmanship. There's lots of different um, translation, which are really beautiful language about how he created us, how he made us to be. Um, and the Psalms talk about amazing stories about how we're made and um, how we're beautiful in his image. Um, so, yeah. Um, I'd love to just close with this final scripture because I think it's really great to, to kind of compare that. It's 1 Samuel 16, 7, um, and it says that the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I wonder what it would look like if we stopped comparing ourselves, if we stopped getting down about our self-image. I wonder what would happen in G2 if we stopped that negative thought pattern. I wonder what would happen in your lectures, um, maybe in the streets of York. I wonder how our community would be really changed if we started uplifting ourselves and seeing ourselves as just as God sees us. So there's some post-it notes under your chairs. Some of my friends have dotted some pens around. Um, I'd love it if we could take a minute just in silence to write three things about yourself that you love. Three things that God has said over your life um, that is of value. So we're just going to take a couple of minutes in silence um, just to write on these post-its what we think God says over us. There was once a flower... This flower had purple petals and a bright green stem which waved in the wind. When the sun shone, its petals lit up a field with its vibrant colours as it reflected the sun's light. But the flower wasn't spotless. It had a rip in its left leaf and a kink in its stem. The flower loved it when the sun shone on it. The warmth, the recognition, the closeness, the intimacy. Yet, when the sun shone on the flower, it also knew that its flaws would be shown up. It wouldn't just be the nice bits. It would be fully known. So the flower stayed in the dark, craving intimacy, but scared of vulnerability. I think it's safe to say that we all resonate with this flower to a certain extent. <laughs> we crave intimacy. The warmth, the recognition, a relationship in which we feel free to express our deep thoughts, our feelings, to be known. And before we dive deeper into what intimacy actually is, I just want to clarify that this isn't just a Christian thing, it's a human thing, the craving for intimacy. Um, we often think it's a sexual craving, which it can be, but to, the, to its core, it means that we're wired with a longing for safe, satisfying connections, to share experiences, to share our feelings, to share opinions, ideas, who we are. And although it's a human thing, I believe that God it plays an important role within this to help us within our humanity. And that's what we're going to be unpacking today. Okay, so we crave intimacy. And that's all well and good until it branches past the perfect Insta feed, when it gets into the parts of us that maybe we're not too keen on. I know there are parts of me which I don't even like looking at, let alone letting someone else look at that part of my life. And don't you think it's really difficult to recognize that intimacy always comes along with vulnerability? To a certain extent, I avoid thinking about it because vulnerability is the scary part. We crave intimacy, expressing ourselves, but we're so scared of vulnerability that we just avoid both and we hide away. We, 
we're left with this longing for intimate, satisfying and deep relationships. Vulnerability can often feel like a light shining on us, just like that flower. To be fully known can often come with a fear of rejection. We're scared that our ripped petals and our kinked stems will be shone on and it will change how God looks at us, how other people look at us. In 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, it says that God looks at our hearts. He knows our hearts. He sees everything. That's petrifying to me. I don't want him to see everything. The broken bits, the bits which are still in process, the bits which I don't like to look at, the bits which make me cringe. Yet it also says in Romans 38 to 39, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. He loved us from the start and there's nothing we can do which can separate us from that love. We are fully known and we are fully loved by God. The light doesn't bring shame, but it brings conviction and freedom. The light's a warm and comforting light. He doesn't intrude on us. He waits for us to invite him in. Maybe that's what it means to be vulnerable with God, to allow ourselves to be loved, to invite him into every part of us, to be fully known and fully loved. You and I are fully known. You are fully loved. It's not one or the other. He sees it all and he loves you. The antidote to the fear of vulnerability is love. This calls us to ask, well, what is love? And there are different types of love, um, but in this circumstance, I'm talking about agape love. And this love is a love without condition. This is the love which God promises in the Bible. We're scared of vulnerability because we're scared of rejection. Scared we won't be loved. But God God sees all of us and he loves us. He loves us without condition. I thought it was really interesting. In the Bible, before the fall, before sin entered the world, um, God still said to Adam, you know, it'd be really good for you to have a friend. And he gave him Eve. Showing the importance of our relationship, showing the importance of our relationships with each other. That even when the world was perfect, humanity was in perfect unity with God, yet still God said, I want you to be in relationship with each other. He wants us to have relationships with each other, which reflects our relationship with him. So if God fully knows me and God fully loves me, then what does that look like in my relationship with my friends? Now, I'm not saying you now have to go home and overshare your whole life story with your housemate or the random walking next to you on the street, maybe. (laughs) In our friendships, we have to be wise. We have to invite Jesus into the process. It has to be a safe place where we're going to find acceptance. We have to take courage to step. Um, We have to take a courageous step, there we go, to make ourselves known. But we also must fully love so that other people are safe to be vulnerable. There's a song I want to share which contains the two challenges which I've spoken about, to be fully known and fully loved. Whilst the music plays, um, I'd like you to, there's there's a video, um, and listen to the words, and think of an area of your life where where you think you need God's love in it. You may want to write this down on a piece of paper, which you can find underneath your chairs, and come and put it into a box 
We won't be reading it, but it's just a way of you allowing and accepting God's love into that area of your life. So we've heard from Daniela that we are fully known and fully loved by God. But how do we know that God loves us? Is it because of a particular song that we have? Is it a place that we go to? Is it a particular feeling we get at a particular time? Is it the fact that God can heal us and uh, lovingly and sometimes he does? Is it the fact that generally we have good lives and things are roughly going the way we want them to? Is it because our, our self-image is the way we want it to be? Is it because we're not worrying? Does God love me because I love him? Is it that I have to love God and then in response God loves me and I have to motivate it first? Well, maybe, but I have a question for that. What about when all of that disappears? What about when the, I can't listen to that song because my phone is broken? What about when I can't go to that place because it's closed? What about when that feeling just can't come up no matter what I do? What about when that person isn't healed? What about when the good life that I'm supposed to have supposedly, doesn't happen? What about when my self-image is in tatters and when all I can think about is worry? What about when the world seems to be in chaos and every single day we're looking at a tally go up on the news? That's why I want us to look at this verse. So if you have a Bible, uh, have a look at Romans 5, verse 8. It's going to come up on the screen as well. Here, Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a few things I want us to take from that. The first is God shows us. He hasn't put us in a black box, given us a map and a compass and said, off you go. Come find me. I'm waiting. Prove it. Sort yourself out. No, God shows us for eternity. He doesn't show it for an instant and then say, too bad, you've missed it. He declares it in the heavens for eternity so that we can never doubt it. And he declares it to this group of people that Paul calls us. But who is this us? Is it a group of Roman Christians in first century uh, uh, AD, uh, Rome, who have no connection to us now. Well, we see the answer to this in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You see, the us Paul is talking about here is the ungodly. People who, when the light is shone on them, see that the petal is torn. The stem is bent. But at the same time, these ungodly people are not like that because someone else has come along. They're not there because a toddler has come and kicked them in the grass or because the wind has blown and knocked them. They are there because when they look up and they see the light, they hate it so much that they bend over to look at the ground and break their backs. They can't bear to look at it. This us is... 
us. So how does God love us? Well, have a look at the second part of this verse. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very people who refuse to look at the sun, the warriors, the people who cannot see themselves the way God has made them, the people who can see the most purest love in the world and yet wonder whether they are fully known and fully loved. So how? Jesus died. The God of the universe descended from heaven, took on the flesh of a person, and let himself be nailed to the cross by the very people he had made. He allowed his back to be whipped until there was no skin left on it, and then left to hang in shame in front of everyone, to asphyxiate under the weight of his own body. And Jesus died for us. You see, the only reason someone dies for you is if you were meant to die instead. But in the same way, he died for us in the sense that he went to the cross with us in mind. He didn't just generically die and say, This is for a a random group of people. I don't know them. No, we see in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. For the joy of knowing that he would soon be joined by brothers and sisters in the faith, he endured the cross. For the joy of knowing that Annie, that Will, that Ben, that Matt could be made whole and restored to him, He endured the cross for the joy of knowing that you will be with him in heaven, to be with him forever. If he hangs on a tree, he did that. So how does God love us? He sent Jesus to die for us. The God of all creation who sustains this very room simply by the word of his power, who holds your very bodies together and knits the particles together. He stepped down from heaven and attached himself to a cross to die for you. And in doing that, he lifts the stem. He puts the petal back on. He makes it beautiful. He restores our self-image to see us the way that he sees us, clothed in the righteousness, the goodness of Christ. He saves us. And he does all of this because he loves you. You. He loves you. How do we respond to this? For all of us, I would urge you, memorize this, book, memorize this verse. Let it be your bread, your butter, your water, your sleep. Get it down in your heart so that when the worries come, 
You can feed on it. When you're tempted to look at your body and wish that things were different, you can drink from it. So that when you question whether you are fully known and fully loved, you can know that Christ died for you. And secondly, if this has stirred something in you, if you are feeling that you need to know this love, you haven't known it before and you need to know it, I want to pray with you. Uh, Please do not leave before praying with me or with someone else. Um, I'm going to be at the back. A few of us are going to be at the back uh, once we've started singing a few songs. Please do come and talk to us and pray with us. Let me finish with a prayer. A loving Father, you show us that you love us by sending your own Son to die for us. You have declared for all eternity that we are yours, that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will not hold our sins against us, but welcome us through Jesus' blood to be your children. Father, forgive us our sins for all that we do that is evil. Forgive us for hating you, for not caring about you, and for ignoring you. Thank you for the love that you show us in Jesus, and show us how to know this love. Put it deep within us, Lord, as we memorize and savor your word, that we might know our Savior, Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.